Well, last week we began talking about Revelation 20, this very important part of the book of Revelation. And we are in our home stretch, aren't we? I mean, it ends at 22, so we have three chapters, not even three chapters left. We'll be done as, you know, here we are in November, we're going to finish it on Christmas Eve. Um, so last part, last week in the first part of Revelation chapter 20, we saw the angel come down from heaven with a key to the bottomless pit and a great chain, and then he bound the dragon, who was Satan, for a thousand years, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Now, I made it obvious that I believe we are in this millennium now. That Christ has Satan bound in this sense. Before Christ, he held, Satan held the nations in darkness. Only Israel enjoyed the light of God's word. But now in Christ... Satan is being prevented from deceiving the Gentile nations as he had been doing since the beginning. And because he is bound, many Gentiles now have come to faith, including us. It's as Satan was bound, we have been freed. And now we come to the second, the next section of Revelation 20, the part when Satan gets released. In verses 7. Anyway, okay. Verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So this morning's passage tells us about three things that are going to happen after Satan is released following the millennium. Um, or three things that will happen after the millennium. One, Satan will be released. Number two, that the nations will be gathered to make war against the saints. And three, the Lord will intervene and judge Satan. Now this description of God's people being surrounded by their enemies, seeking to devour them, but then being rescued by God, does not just appear in Revelation 20 out of the blue. It is a part of a big pattern in the Bible. First of all, it follows a pattern in the Old Testament. We get an indication of this in verse 8 with this mention of Gog and Magog. When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. 
This is the first and only time Gog and Magog are mentioned in the book of Revelation and in the New Testament. Now, Gog and Magog may sound like uh, demonic monsters, just as we thought we were getting rid of all the demonic monsters, but that's actually not who they are or what they are. Rather, they're identified with the nations of the earth. You can see that in the way it's worded. Satan will be released from his prison, will come out to deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. So they are what John, or the vision calls the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. So what's the point of calling them the nations Gog and Magog? Why mention them at all? There's, um, there's not much here to ela- that elaborates on it or explains it. Well, we've seen this a lot in the book of Revelation. God inserts, inserts little signals into the text to direct our attention to another portion of Scripture which we're supposed to read in conjunction with the passage that we're reading. Here the Scripture wants to draw our attention to Ezekiel 38 and 39, the only other place in the Bible where Gog and Magog are mentioned. In Ezekiel 38 and 39, Gog is the ruler of a nation called Magog. And they are, he is joining, Gog and his country, Magog, are joining with other nations gathering together to oppose the people of God. Sound familiar? This, and of course at that time it's Israel. This signal tells us that the Ezekiel passage points forward to this event when the nations of the earth would gather against the people of God. And the Ezekiel passage is part of a larger theme of Old Testament prophecies which foretell the time when God will allow the nations to gather against his people for the final war of history and then rescue them. See this in Joel 3, in Daniel 12, in Isaiah 31, in Zechariah 12, 3, and other places. But... This doesn't just fit in with a pattern in the Old Testament prophets. It also fits into the pattern in the Old Testament story. Think about it. It really goes back to the Exodus. Where God's people were pinned against the sea by the Egyptian army. Until God rescued them. He split the sea. And they walked across on dry ground and then he made the waters fall upon the Egyptians. Everything looked lost until God very impressively delivered his people. We see the same story again in Sennacherib when the Assyrians surrounded Jerusalem and it looked like all hope was lost. And the people, you know, were, were uh, counting, you know, their lives were flashing before their eyes. They were saying their final goodbyes to each other. And then in the middle of the night, God sent his 
angel who slayed 185,000 of the enemy soldiers and they fled back to their homeland. You see this also in the story of Daniel and the lion's den. Where Daniel is delivered in the face of certain death. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace see this pattern in the life of our Lord, don't we? In some ways, when, when Jesus came, he bound Satan. He even said to his disciples that he saw Satan fall like lightning. And he resisted Satan in the temptation. And he cast Satan out, or cast demons out of many people. And yet, Satan one day was released to have his way with Jesus. And Jesus himself referred to this brief period of time when evil was unleashed upon him. Listen to John 16, 2-4. He says to his disciples the night before the crucifixion, They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. And then in Luke, when he's talk, when Jesus is talking to, near the end again, when Jesus is talking to the elders and the priests, he says, this is your hour and the power of darkness. So Jesus understood that there was a time when Satan would be allowed to have his way with Jesus. And of course, this all culminated at the cross when even the sky turned dark. But that darkness didn't last long, did it? Just when it seemed hopeless, God intervened and triumphed over the powers of evil. So we see it in the Old Testament prophets. We see it in the Old Testament story. We see it in the life of Jesus. We also see it here in the book of Revelation. Revelation 20 verse 7 is the fifth, at least the fifth time we see this pattern in the book of Revelation. We're told in chapter 9, first five verses, that the shaft of the bottomless pit was opened and the satanic powers were released, but only for a short time. In Revelation 11 verse 7, reading about the two witnesses, which I believe represent the witnessing church, it says, after they finish their testimony, then the beast rises from the bottomless pit to make war on them and kill them. In chapter 16, 12 to 16, demonic spirits assemble the kings of the earth to battle on the great day of God the Almighty at Armageddon. In 17.8, we're told that the beast was about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. So this fits into a pattern we've already seen here. When the thousand years are ended, Satan is released from prison to deceive the nations of the earth and to gather them for battle against the saints and against the beloved city.
And there's one more thing. And I know that there's nothing more boring than talking about grammar. But I need to talk about grammar for just for a minute. In English, we have definite articles and indefinite articles. The definite article, for instance, like the. An indefinite article like a. Or say an, like an apple. But in Greek, there is no indefinite article. And so if you aren't talking about a specific item, a specific apple, you don't use the article at all. You just leave it off. And that's their way of having an indefinite article or saying an apple. Well, um, here in this passage, in, in the book of Revelation, Whenever in these four passages where the book the word war is used, in the first time in eleven seven, it doesn't have the article, the definite article. So it just means a war. They're they're making war, making but no specific war in general. But then every time after that, in 16, 14, in 19, 19, and in 20, verse 8, the one we just read, the article is there. So each one of those is referring back to the war that was introduced in 11.7. So they're all talking about the same war. The great war, the final war. So all of these are clearly linked in the book of Revelation. It's not just a bunch of verses that talk about a bunch of different wars. Now I want to talk a little bit about this fire from heaven in the last part of verse 9. They surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. Now we've seen before that the instrument of judgment will come from the mouth of Christ we saw the sharp sword that came out of his mouth in 1914 and in chapter 1 also. The armies of heaven were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. So we saw <clears throat> that his tool of judgment comes from his mouth. And uh, we compared this to Second uh, Thessalonians 2.8 where it says, Then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring nothing and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. So again, his tool of judgment is the breath of his mouth. It comes forth from his mouth. And in Matthew 25, 41, where Christ executes final judgment by the mere pronouncement of his words, we see this again. When he says, depart from me, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So in all these cases we see that the tool of his judgment comes from his mouth and it's, 
It, very similar actually to how he created in the first place when he said, let there be and there was. And now he's basically pronouncing judgment and you know in a, in a earthly court you have the judgment of guilty or innocent or whatever and then you have the uh, punishment that's set for that. But in, in this it's the same. It's the pronouncement of judgment is the very thing, it would seem, that brings upon the judgment. Now, here, all it says is, fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And I'm just trying to help us to see that these are all different ways of saying the, the same thing. And one place that helps us to see that is 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 7 to 10 I'm sorry 2 Thessalonians 1 7 to 10 which speaks about the time quote when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. So all these talking about the same thing. That, and this is the kind of way we're told about what's going to happen. It's not, okay, the first day, the afternoon, you know, this. It's not given to us in outline form or in detail. We're given these little glimpses. But just because the glimpses aren't identical to each other doesn't mean they're not talking about the same thing. Now, from my perspective, as I've told you before, the Bible paints a picture of the future which includes continued progress of the gospel as he restrains Satan's ability to deceive the nations, along with tribulation and persecution. But then, before Christ returns, there will be an unleashing of Satan's power and the world will experience a short time of evil which believers will experience as persecution and threats that are much more intense than, than during the rest of the age at the hands of the non-believing world. Then just when it looks like the church will be completely wiped out by the powers of darkness, Christ will return and vanquish the powers of hell finally and permanently and there will be a new heavens and a new earth. Now, certainly, you know, some of, to some people, some of this sounds far-fetched. And one thing that could sound far-fetched in this, in this scenario, this description, is imagining the unbelieving world trying to annihilate the people of God. I mean, think about it. This would have to involve people attacking their own family members. And in our present context, that might be a little bit hard to believe. However, Remember several things. Remember that Satan here has been released to deceive the nations. That is, that, that there's 
a, a new freedom given to Satan, um, and that that might include, you know, his ability to. Uh, it, it even says that that uh, they're deceived in in a specific way here. Uh, to deceive the nations, to gather them for battle. Also, I mean, think about our own knowledge of history. Think about Nazi Germany. And, you know, Nazi Germany was not the story of a a terribly evil people that were just all prone to do terrible evil things. It was ordinary people that got caught up in a movement that was doing atrocities. And, uh, and so this is not beyond normal human beings. Think about the Civil War, when brother killed brother for a much smaller cause than, than what we're talking about here. Think about what Jesus said in Matthew 10, 34-36. Do not think that I've come to bring peace on the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. I've come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. And think about Jesus himself. You know, here he's with his own people, his own generation. And yet they shouted, crucify him, crucify him. This doesn't say anything beyond what we already should be expecting from the rest of Scripture as possible. Now what's it going to be like for the Christians who are alive during the time when Satan is released? It's not a very pretty picture. And that's important that we realize. Um, You know, in Matthew 24, it says, They will deliver you up, Jesus said, They will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. You'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Zechariah, uh, in the first two verses, describes it, uh, this gathering of the nations against the people of God in such a way that I won't even read it. I just urge you to, to read it on your own. It will send a chill down your spine. And this may be why this time is so brief, because it's so intense. Jesus says, even though it's difficult to understand exactly what he's, what era he's talking about in this passage, he says in Matthew 24, 21 to 22, there will be great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Well, this is scary stuff. And I think it's good for us to, to hear it because I think we need to ask ourselves, is, my, is our Christianity robust enough to get me through this kind of dark day? And if we're not the ones to have to go through the days of Satan's release... 
you know, whatever Christianity we live by is the Christianity we're passing down to our children and those who come after us. Is it robust enough to get them through these days? It's not just that we need to be ready. Our children and our grandchildren need to be ready. And the time to begin preparing is now. We don't know exactly when it's going to hit, but there's a deadly hurricane coming. It's not a time for relaxing or taking it easy. We can't afford to delay our preparations. We can't afford to be caught up in the little luxuries of life. We can't be preoccupied with our favorite food or just having the right outfit to wear or the best car to drive or the perfect decorations for Christmas. We must live with a warfare mentality. Now, we still have to deal with life and there's many choices we still have to make and we have to go on living. But we can't be so focused on the minute things that we miss the the elephant in the room. But we don't need to be afraid. The true and living Christ is not only big enough to intervene, he's big enough to carry his people until he intervenes. And if he's big enough to carry his children through those days, then he's able to carry us through whatever days he calls us to walk through, even if they're not these final days. For we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Now when will these things happen? Well, before Jesus went to the cross, he taught his disciples about his return and about the things which would happen in the future. Here's one of the things he said. This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end would come. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. We're not supposed to busy ourselves trying to figure out when it's going to come. We're supposed to busy ourselves getting ready. And how do we get ready? We get ready by building our house upon the rock before the storm comes. And we get ready by fulfilling what God has called us to fulfill and being faithful to Him in the context in which He's called us to live. Now, I don't know about you, but I wish things were different. I wish things were easy. I wish things were going to get better and better. I wish evolution were true in that sense. You know, that that the world's just going to keep improving and improving. I wish that God had only health and wealth and fun and ease in store for us as His children. I wish we could have heaven here and now. But God knows that that's not good enough for his precious children. He knows that suffering is needed for us to achieve joys which we're unable now to experience as we are. 
But in our hearts and in the church, there's always a temptation to try to improve the Bible's version of Christianity. There's a temptation to leave off the hard and disturbing stuff and just pay attention to the pleasant things. It's the lure of an easy Christianity. Now, if you read the Bible seriously, it's clear that the Christian life is not easy. But if I were allowed to pick which verses to show you, I could easily paint a picture of an easy Christianity. But an easy Christianity would have to ignore a lot of the Bible. And that's not a problem for many Christians because they ignore a lot of the Bible anyway. And guess what? Easy Christianity is not enough to prepare God's people for what's coming. God has given us the whole Bible, the whole counsel of God, as Paul calls it in Acts 20, 27. And he wants us to pay attention to the whole thing, not just our favorite parts, not just the easy, pleasant parts. Now, I have one more thing I'd like to address. And uh, if you are already filled, and uh, then just... Don't pay attention to this last part and uh, just pray and enjoy, reflect upon the first things you've heard because this is a little bit heavier and a little bit more disturbing to some than the rest, but not. But anyway, I will, I will go on. And the question is, what will, why does God re- allow Satan to be released? Why not just leave him in the pit? I do think that the Bible answers this question. But I don't think that a lot of people want to hear what its answer is. I think the answer is found in Exodus 9 and in Romans 9. In Exodus 9, 15 to 16... God explains why he put up with Pharaoh instead of just obliterating Pharaoh. This is what he says. By now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But indeed, for this reason, I have allowed you to remain in order to show my power in you and in order to proclaim my name through all the earth. Why was Pharaoh necessary for God to show his power and proclaim his name? Well, when God did finally show his power and proclaim his name, it was through the parting of the Red Sea. That's what he's talking about. And that couldn't have happened without Pharaoh. Now, Paul uses these very verses from Exodus 9 
in Romans 9 to pull back the curtain and explain some of God's mysterious purposes. This is what he says. The scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Just quoting Exodus 9. And then he rewords Exodus 9 and applies it not just to Pharaoh, but to all the monsters that God allows into our lives. In verse 22 and 23 of Romans 9. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make his power known, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. In other words, he is telling us, it seems to me, that God raises up Satan and all the rest of the wicked for his own good purpose. And that is so that he might display the riches of his glory to his precious chosen people whom he calls the vessels of his mercy. There's a great show coming. And we will behold on that last day a display of God's power, a display of God's glory that will fortunately, blessedly be imprinted on our eyes for the rest of eternity. And it could never happen if God didn't allow these monsters to do their thing. He will, on that day, do something that will stop all of our wonderings of why he allowed such terrible things to happen. Why he allowed such terrible things to be experienced in this world. It will be the answer and it will show forth his wisdom it will show forth his power and we will all see his glory let us pray O Lord our God we do thank you that one day all of these monsters will be gone And they will be no more. And they will be tormented in the lake of fire for all eternity. So they no longer deceive us. And no longer tempt us. And no longer threaten us. But we also thank you, dear Lord, that because you have a purpose for them in our lives that you allow them to remain now 
And dear Lord, this means that our lives are scary to some extent. And we shudder at powers that are greater than us, that hate us and desire to consume us. O Lord, may we be given the peace that passes understanding as we continue to face these monsters and live in the world where they are allowed to be active as we wait for that day when our Lord Jesus appears and puts an end to it in such a glorious way. Oh Lord, thank you so much that you love us more than we love ourselves. For when, that when we would choose ease and comfort and safety for ourselves, you choose suffering and difficulty and trouble and disappointment and failure that, so that we might be prepared to see your power and your glory on the last day. Continue to do your will in us, Lord even if we kick against the goads. Now thank you that we can come to the table of our Lord. Thank you that we can draw near to him and partake of him, our true food and our true drink. We pray that you would meet us here and renew us. Thank you for Jesus. We pray in his name.